Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. You know, sometimes just to hear the voices of our loved ones are comforting in these troubled times. So I've made it my life's work to capture and save the voices of our elders, even after they've passed. I actually started a business recently doing just that, and my daughter came up with the perfect name for it, Voice Locket. Isn't that great? Like a locket, but instead of a photo the voice of a loved one. I'll be telling you more about that in the weeks to come. But first, I want you to hear from a very dear friend of our family, and I know you'll enjoy this. What is the sound of one man listening? This is Man Listening, a fresh podcast featuring the stories of strong women who bounce back. Man Listening, because every woman deserves to be heard. Hey there, I'm Stuart Watson, and welcome to Man Listening. Betty McKimmy immigrated from London to South Georgia, where I grew up, specifically Albany, Georgia, and I knew her. She was a friend of the family. She was a war bride. She is just the loveliest person, and she has the loveliest accent. Her speaking voice is incredible. Uh, She played bridge, the card game, with my mom and the other ladies, for half a century, the same group, and now only two members of that bridge club survive, and Betty is one of them. She has such a rich story that contains so much history and insight and wisdom, I really wanted to share it with you, Betty McKimmy. How was it that you came to the United States? Well, two of my brothers were in training with the Royal Air Force, in Canada on America and everyone was very kind to them. They had wonderful hospitality in Canada and America all the way down to Pensacola and the Bahamas and um, so when American and Canadian troops started coming to England for the invasion of France uh, my parents wanted to reciprocate and we had a lot of American officers and and enlisted men in our house and one day my this young man came into the library at Henley on Thames looking for a history of Scotland and my mother said to him oh you're an American why don't you come for lunch on Sunday and bring some of your friends too so he came with two others he liked to say that Afterwards, he went back to the bivouac and left his friends there the next Sunday and came back again. So that was how, how I met him. And um, we were down at the beach. Uh, about He went to France uh, 10 days after the invasion and was a triage doctor um, behind the lines. And he came back in April of the following year and I had just gotten off the, my bicycle to mail him a letter and he stepped off the bus. How he found us in Sussex, I don't know, but he did. And um, 
So we got engaged and then he came back similarly, unexpectedly, uh, met me at Paddington Station as I was heading to work and said, I've come back to marry you. So we were married five days later. <laughs> and Did he propose? Oh yes, he, we had been engaged that previous spring. Ah. So um, he went back to Germany and um, returned to America in January, I think, and I followed in March on a troop ship with, there were 60,000 of us all together coming. And he met me in New York. I never saw the Statue of Liberty because they announced my name as one who was being met in New York. So I hurried downstairs to pack and we came down the gangplank and all the um, reporters' light bulbs were flashing. It was really quite a heady moment. And he met me and we spent a few days in New York. And then we came to uh, Atlanta on the Southerner. And he drove down to Fort Gaines, which is where his farm family was, where he had been raised. And my mother-in-law threw her arms around me and she said, honey, I'm going to love you to death. And it was mutual, we did. It was wonderful homecoming. So then we went to Albany and um, he set up shop with his uncle who's a surgeon there. Wow. So that's it. Do you know the name of the specific ship you were on? Yes, the John Erickson. Ah. And I still have all the newsletters that uh, came out and it, it was just quite interesting to reread them. <laughs> now, so how many women were on this ship? You know, that's hard. I think it was about 1,400, I'm not sure. It had been a luxury cruise ship, the sister ship of the Gripsholm, and had been converted into a troop ship. There were three tiers of bunks. They took out the top one, and I thought I was lucky to get a down, down below bunk until the girl upstairs got seasick. <laughs> There's a lot of seasickness. We weren't used to steam heat either. And we kept opening the portholes and the stewardesses would come by and shake their fingers and say, don't do that. <laughs> um, so did your mother have in mind you marrying an American? Was she, is that what she had in mind when she invited Oh, her? no, no, I don't think so. But they fell in love with Frank and um, uh, realized that um, this was how it was going to be. Mm -hmm. So we married in Shiplake Church which is quite interesting because it was the church where Tennyson married and he had been courting a ward of the vicar and the vicar would not let his ward marry uh, Tennyson because he said poets never amounted to anything. However, he relented after a while and of course he became the poet laureate of England. Oh my word. <laughs> And so what did they call this flotilla of women coming from England? Well, I guess it was the bride ships. There was a lot in the newspapers and I kept a scrapbook of them. One of them was a famous cartoon by Lowe, British cartoonist, and it showed this girl sitting on a shack. I like to think it was Arkansas, not anywhere else. And um, with all these high-hatted bearded men around and she had just arrived with her suitcase and he said, but honey, what made you think everyone lived in skyscrapers? And what did you imagine of America? <laughs> well, I'd had 
uh, quite a few letters from my future mother-in-law and my, Frank's two sisters. And so I had a pretty good idea. I knew that his father had raised cattle, corn and peanuts on a farm. And um, it was a farm uh, close to where his grandfather had lived and farmed and pioneered there. And um, let's see, there were two brothers and a sister and brother-in-law who were farming there too. And they were well regarded in the community. And um, then of course, I thought we were coming to Atlanta. I thought he was going to go on and, and take a residency, which he told me he would earn something like Oh, I forget, it was a very nominal amount, and I thought that was so romantic. If he wanted to further his education, that would be fine. But his uncle said, you're married and it's time to earn a living. You come practice in Albany with me. So that was how he ended up in Albany. Right. <laughs> but I, I had sort of looked into Atlanta more than Albany. <laughs> and uh, how did Albany differ from where uh, you grew up? What kind of... Uh, Oh, all the difference in the world. I grew up in London, and then when I was 14, I guess, um, well, we had been down on the coast in the beach when war broke out, and um, I'll never forget, we were riding horses that morning, and when war was declared, and we stopped at a little cottage because we all knew there was an ultimatum at 11. and. Um, we asked, and a man had the radio on, he said, it's war. And my parents were visibly shaken because they remembered the war, my mother especially. And um, she knew she had two sons who would be going, and I eventually did war work too. But um, it, it was quite different. We moved back to London when France fell, and um, incidentally, my little brother and I helped the returning soldiers from Dunkirk fill sandbags to defend our island home. But it looked as though um, the invasion was imminent, so we moved back to London. And it was quiet that summer, and then the blitz started in the fall, and it was really, really bad. We had bombs landing all around us. We had had a bomb land in our front garden at the beginning of the war when my brothers were in the house. They were developing some camera film and um, they weren't, um, they didn't want to get out of the house, but they made them. The bomb had not gone off, so the men came and dug it up and took it off and exploded, and exploded it. So anyway, when the bombing got really bad, my, brother, my father said, I'm going to send you down to my brother's house, Henley-on-Thames, just outside Henley-on-Thames. So we went down there and my father was commuting to his law office every day and um, he ran into a friend of his and he said, I'm desperate to get my family out of London. The man said, well, why don't you buy my house, old man? I've been trying to sell it for five years and my father saw a great opportunity there and he saw it, wrote him a receipt on the spot, put a tuppenny stamp on, which was law, signed across it, gave him, I think, 10 pounds or something and they settled on a pre-war price. And so um, we, we moved down there. And the family in there, the couple moved to Bournemouth, which was horribly bombed during the war. It was a terrible mistake. We were living down there and commuting to London every day. 
Was much thought given to where the bombs might fall, or did oh, they no. just fall it was everywhere? Indiscriminate bombing. I remember when the docks were bombed at the start of the Bits Creek. You see, England depended on imports. We got sugar from the Caribbean, wheat from Canada, cotton from India, um, and we would. It was our lifeline. So the Germans came and bombed. I was standing up in the back bedroom, and saw this red glow in the sky. It looked like a sunset, but it glowed all day next morning and there were the bomb there were the fire bombs they'd landed on the docks. And it was really terrible. So um anyway we moved down to Henley on Thames after that. The bomb that remained unexploded, how mm -hmm. close did it come to the home where your brothers were? Oh it was in our front garden. If it had gone off they would have been killed I'm sure. And did your brothers both survive? Big pardon? Did your brothers both survive the war? Oh yes, they did. Um, the older one volunteered as soon as war broke out. And um, he was accepted, but not for pilot's training. They found out he had great radio skills and they needed people to repair the bombs and radar and things like that. So he languished as a lowly aircraftman while his younger brother went in was commissioned officer on completion of his training and he got sent out to um, Ceylon, Colombo, and he was navigating the Indian Ocean and that was his army service. Jim finally got accepted for training, finished his training, uh, graduated from the Pensacola Naval Air Base, did very well too. and. Um, he got back to Ireland the day peace was declared. <laughs> but they both had a lifelong love of flying and um, uh, John stayed in the reserve so he could fly on his holiday and Jim had a plane and uh, used it for business purposes. Yeah, that's very fortunate. I mean, these bombs, were these German aircraft flying over and dropping bombs or were these the... Um, were these the rockets? Were you being shot? Oh, well, early in the war, they were the German planes. And I remember walking around our neighborhood in London and just seeing whole houses split in two with the bathroom facilities hanging on the side of the wall where the jump bombs had landed. They were um, Air, Air Force, German Air Force, Luftwaffe. And of course, they came all over England. They bombed Coventry terribly badly. I think we, we bombed Dresden. Retaliation. That was bad. But um, th these were then, these were um, planes. And then they started sending the pilotless planes from Pinamunda, I think it was, over England. And they would land mostly in southeast England. And one landed on my father's office 20 minutes before he got there. He was very fortunate to have survived. Well, when you say yeah. pilotless planes, that's really a rocket, right? Yeah, it's a rocket plane. You could hear them when the, it sounded like a motorbike, and when the, when the engine cut off, um, you knew it was coming down. Now, I was working, doing war work in London when they started sending the rockets, and you didn't get any notice of those. There's just this terrific boom. And um, they, a lot of those landed on London. I, I heard them. <laughs>
dived under my desk, <laughs> but it was too late then, of course. Yeah. And um, what effect did that have on you when you're doing work and you know in the back of your mind that you might have no warning? Well, I suppose when you're young, you have a certain in, in, invulnerability and you think, well, thank goodness that didn't, didn't hit me this time and maybe the next one won't either. Did you lose any friends or family? Um, well, I had a, a very good friend of mine. She and I commuted to London every day, uh, whose brother was a pilot and he was shot down over Duisburg and his mother never knew what happened to him until after the war and they told her that he was rescued by a Dutch family. Duisburg is very close to the Dutch border and was prepared to being shipped out when the Gestapo caught him and he had no identification on him so he couldn't be taken as a prisoner of war and they shot him as a spy. He's a lovely young man. And then um, down at the beach, I'm, I knew a young fellow who was killed in Dieppe. And um, several of my friends had parents who were uh, um, killed in the bombing of London, too. You um, have bound to have had a different view going back to World War II than your native uh, citizen counterparts. You know, you're bound to have had a different mm -hmm. view of what was going oh, on. Yeah. I think so. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Well, for one thing, we had to be so careful with everything, paper, food, everything, that it's very hard for me to throw anything away now. <laughs> My children say, Mom won't throw it away, she'll make it into soup. <laughs> There's a lot of truth in that. <laughs> now, is that a function of World War II or the Depression? World War II. I don't really remember the Depression, and I don't think it hit England as hard as it did this country. One of the things that amazed me when I came over here was I think I grew up in a, a fairly um, comfortable family, but I was amazed when I came to America to find out how really well people lived at that time. and. Um, it was not, a, we had one car and didn't use it very often living in London. And a lot of families had two cars at the time. And I was always amazed at that. And the amount of um, disposable uh, things they had. You know, they would throw away radio if they want a new one. And this happened with televisions. And we grew up to be much more careful of everything. It just struck me in reviewing my uncles and, um, that people had such vastly different experiences depending on where they were, depending yes. on where they were stationed. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, the women in the bridge club, they would have had completely different experiences than you did in the war. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, I didn't hear any of them complain, but some of my in-laws over in uh, South Georgia said how difficult it had been during the war when sugar was rationed and gasoline was rationed too. <laughs> so, what did you say? <laughs> I didn't say anything. <laughs> but I remembered we were down to one egg a week and uh, very, very few, we had very few resources. My mother was wonderful, she managed beautifully. But um, we, didn't, we didn't really have very much in the way of food. 
You and held your tongue? Yeah. I, I think I would have said, try <laughs> having bombs dropped on you. <laughs> well, after the war, it was worse because bread was rationed. England had spent most of her sterling resources and um, could not pay for these things, so they rationed bread. We couldn't get the wheat from Canada anymore. And um, I used to uh, buy um, care packages. I remember struggling from the A&P in downtown uh, to the hotel where we were staying, the Gordon Hotel, and packing up these big boxes and then struggling to the post office. But it meant a great deal to them to have those things. You lived in the Gordon Hotel? Yes. Uh -huh. How long did you all live there? Really, I think it was 10 weeks. And um, then we found a school teacher's uh, home. They were going off to California for the summer, so we rented that. And then um, Dr. Siama Kemi, Frank's uncle, the dentist in Albany, um, had an apartment house that he was trying to deregulate, and so we rented that. <laughs> and that's where we lived several years before we built our house. What floor of the Gordon Hotel were you on? I think it was the fourth floor. It was one of the back rooms, and it sold for two seventy-six a day. That was the going rate. And we ate downstairs in the dining room, and I got rather tired of their blushing pear salad, but uh, anything tasted good to me. <laughs> because they didn't vary it, I guess. <laughs> yeah, a lot of it. <laughs> well, the Gordon is still standing. I know. It's... Yeah. Um, Water, gas, and light, I yes. think, now, isn't it? It is. And other friends were in the New Albany Hotel. There was a whole group of us living there. We couldn't find any place to live, you see. Albany was 19,000 before the war. Wow. And it had grown when all the veterans came back. I'll say. Yeah. Um, Paul and Lucille Russell, he did family practice in Albany, were, I think, in the New Albany Hotel. Wow. And I would look in the afternoon, I'd lie on the bed, just absolutely overwhelmed by the heat and watch that fan go around and around and I think, can it ever get any hotter? And it did. <laughs> what did you see out your window? You don't know the room number, do you? Or what, what, no. side, what side did you face? Oh, um, I don't know. It was, um, there was an old porter there there was some kind of an election going on, and he would say to everyone's amusement, this election is just politics. <laughs> then when you went back to England, what did people say about your accent when you went back? To oh, Betty dear, you sound so terribly American. <laughs> did you detect it? <laughs> no. And when I was over here, they said, oh, you sound so... Well, they, they used to think I was from Boston, and then I worked my way down the coast to Savannah. <laughs> so at first they thought it was... At first they thought it was Boston, and then they thought it was... Wow. Charleston. <laughs> um, they didn't recognize it as British? Um, some people did, yeah. Not a lot of them. I yeah. know my grand... Frank's grandmother when she was asked about her new granddaughter-in-law, she said, she seems very nice, but I can't understand a word, she says. <laughs> so you needed a translator. Yeah, I did. <laughs> and uh, I guess simultaneously in London, 
people didn't recognize a southern accent, uh, did they? No, I don't think so. And of course, I'm, I never had a completely southern accent, I don't think. But it was interesting, I took my two older children, my daughters, over to England for a whole month um, in 1955. It was the first time I'd been back in all those years. And um, they came back with very British accents uh, because they played with English children over there. But they soon, very soon lapsed into the um, lingua franca. <laughs> so did you ever, uh, tell the truth, did you ever come to Albany and go, London looks pretty good right now. <laughs> no, I never did. Uh, everyone was so kind to me, so nice. I was very homesick. And I missed a lot of the, well, the radio programs that I'd heard on the BBC. But I came armed. I brought a big box of 50 records with me, you know, those heavy ones. And I wouldn't let anyone carry them. I didn't want them to get broken. And I carried them off the ship and carried them everywhere I went. And I was awfully glad I had them when I got to Albany. Yes. Um, but um, over time, uh, some of the cultural influences increased and it was very nice. Yeah. We had the fledgling Albany Symphony, which a group of us helped revitalize. Um, they had no violin players, native violin players, and somebody recognized the need for this. So we started, tried to start a string program in the schools and um, didn't go very well. I petitioned the Board of Education and somebody duly remarked, when the, when the strings march on the football field, we'll have a string program. <laughs> so of course it never came about. But the Junior League sponsored a string player, which was very good. Another thing they did, which I felt the need of, was sponsor a homebound teacher. My youngest son was homebound for three months with glomerular nephritis. They wouldn't, they did not want him to study at home, uh, but a kindly uh, headmistress principal at Palmyra School let me take the books home and I taught him for three months and he was able to rejoin his class. But I found out that a lot of other parents weren't so lucky if they had a student out with a broken leg or something, they had to miss a year of school. So we got a homebound teacher started and that was very good. And how did the Bridge Club get started? Oh, that was great. That started, I think, when Polly Mundy was engaged to be married and I was not one of the original group but I joined and um, we had the greatest time. We celebrated every birth and every wedding and every high school graduation. It was a time for a party and we grew very close. There were nine of us. We had 36 children between us so we decided we needed an extra one because someone always couldn't come at the last minute. So we were never short of a player, not often anyway. Right. So um, it was nice. We did more chatting than we did bridge club playing. But um, Is that, that where you fun. met Mom or had you met her before? Yeah, no, I hadn't met her before then. Wow. Mm -hmm. So you all and, met through bridge. Right, that's right, yes. And um, I think I took the place of um, 
oh, she was related to the Hans in Pelham. And her husband came up here and they needed another player. And I was a dreadful player, but they tolerated me. And I learned a little bit along the way. <laughs> and um, you were saying that most of those 36 children came before me and lived. Yes, uh-huh. I think Pat Keenan was the eldest and Liz was probably the youngest one. So it's quite an age span there. What was mom's reaction to everyone else having children? What was the discussion around that? Oh, well, she was very tolerant. She would listen to all our tales of children. And um, one day after you had arrived, she had a story of her own. And someone in the group was impatient and said, come on, let's play bridge. And your mother looked at her very steadily and she said, now I have listened to your children's stories all these years. You listen to one of mine. <laughs> Could you tell that uh, Nell wanted to be a mom? Oh yes, absolutely. She devoted her life to her family after this. And I remember we went all through the adoption process with her, how the, the people would come and interview them and how excited she was when they found out that you were on, on their way. Mm -hmm. And um, then of course they would come back and check and make sure you were being well cared for. <laughs> and so she reported each one of these incidents and we followed with great interest. I think Ben was kind of coaching her. I think her brother Ben was coaching her. Was he? Yes. That was she good. said they care a great deal about toileting. That's what she told me. You need to brush up on that. How about that? That's yes. lovely. Yeah. Um, was anyone else in the, uh, did anyone else in the Bridge Club adopt? Was she the only one? No, she was the only one. Oh, okay. It's happened in my own family, so I can really appreciate and how well you and Liz turned out. Yeah. Your parents would be proud of you. I know they are. Well, thank you. Yeah, I felt that way and I was, I was always honored to know them. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, especially when I consider, you know, mm -hmm. uh, it really, it was like I hit the jackpot. That's what I tell people. Well, that's true. I think you all did. You all did because not all adoptions turn out as well as yours did. And um, you, you got two super parents. And if you think about it, um, that was a function of post-World War II and before Roe versus Wade, there were more than a million American children who were adopted. It really was something of the age. That's uh, right. That was the boom time of adoption. Yes, it was. Mm -hmm. Because the soldiers were coming home, everyone was having families. Sure, and, yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's nice. And the bridge club, you all played together uh, bridge for how long? Oh my goodness, well, it, it's still going strong even though there are only four members left. <laughs> well, three really in Albany. So um, I think they get together for lunch. Lou told me the other day that they um, don't try to play bridge anymore. Joe said they can't remember the cards anyway. <laughs> so they just get together for lunch. It's been a great social group through all these years. Really and, amazing. And they, um, everyone, you saw children come and grow up. You yeah. saw people come and go. You yeah. saw, it's just an amazing really amount is. of time. I know. Yeah. Yes. You all played bridge through uh, Korea and Vietnam through right. 
Yeah. Yes. Through Nixon and everything. I know. I know. Yeah. And we've been to one another's weddings and graduations and now last funerals. And I'm sorry to say there was another funeral of a Bridge Club member here just in the last month when Lou McCormick passed. It's really so sad. The end of the greatest generation, and I think they were. They showed us how not just to get by, but to thrive. They demonstrated resilience through their lives, through the Great Recession and World War II, and um, through all the rationing and the deprivation of food and basic essentials and bombs dropping. It really is an incredible story and one for these times too. So thank you, Betty McKimmy. It is a privilege and an honor to know you. Man Listening is a production of Unmediated LLC in cooperation with the Queen City Podcast Network and Balto Creative Media. Allison Andrews at Andrews Creative and Rachel Clapp Miller are developmental producers. Sally Higgins at Higgins and Owens tries to keep us legal. Our music is A Day at the Park by the group Pictures of the Floating World. Your announcer is Catherine Smith. That's me. Please go to our Patreon page. You'll find us at patreon.com. Look for Man Listening, one word, no spaces. We hope you'll join us by becoming a member. A small investment can raise up the conversation. If you want exclusive member merch, like a t-shirt, we can arrange that too. Thank you for supporting Man Listening by listening, by sending us a little bit of money through Patreon, however, by cheering us on. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. Couldn't do it without you. Don't forget to support us at Patreon. We believe one voice can change the conversation. Thanks. 